0: Although there is something else that is pretty scary, and that is to live your life as a human being and not understand God's goodness to us in our struggle against sin. Amen? Anybody in this place ever felt like a failure? Anybody today felt like a failure? Anybody get overwhelmed by the consequences of sin, whether your own or the people around you? Hey, the world is a gigantic mess. Anybody need to be told that? And what's exciting about this message tonight, if you'd bring that up for me, Dana, the PowerPoint, um, what to do when we're overwhelmed with our struggle with sin, it's an important message for us because we're all in that boat. I love how um, Deborah asked me this morning in Sunday school. She's like, is this a good message for you if you're just a human? (laughs) like, yeah, it's a good message, because to be human means to struggle with sin. So I'd ask that you, I'm going to have the um, scriptures come up on the PowerPoint, but if you have your Bibles, it's always good to turn in your own Bibles. If you have that, get it out and ready. We're going to go, first of all, to Psalm chapter 65. And before we do, I'd like to pray. Because I'm really asking God this evening, I'm praying and believing that the Holy Spirit will break some strongholds that we get in our mind and in our hearts about the struggle with sin, its consequences, and its guilt. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this evening, and we need you. We need you so much. We are human beings, and as we prayed Uh, Before the service, together, the worship team and pastor and I, I prayed, Lord, one of my favorite things in Psalm 103, where the Bible simply says that you have pity on us because you know our frame, you remember that we are but dust. And we thank you for your mercy, we thank you that you understand that we are human beings, that you understand that we fail and that we struggle, and that you've provided an answer for us. My prayer tonight is that not a single person in this place will be stopped in their walk with Jesus Christ because of a sin struggle. We are going to sin, and we are going to ride out the waves of those consequences, but you will give us the victory and the hope that we need in the midst of it. And I pray in Jesus' name that you help us to not be stopped by the enemy in your calling and in the joy that we are to have in this life because of Jesus Christ. So please speak to us this evening, God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The main text of the message is going to come from Psalm 65, verse 3. But after we look at that, we're going to back up and talk about the context of the verse, because how many of you know that context is very important, right? Now, I said this at the youth lock-in the other night. You want to talk about context, okay? We're at a youth lock-in, and there are five very responsible (coughs) leaders at the lock-in. I coughed on purpose there, okay? Five responsible leaders at the lock-in, and we're all hanging out, And I'm just out of the corner of my eye, we're talking and laughing, we're watching a comedian, there's all different activities going on, and out of the corner of my eye I notice in one part of the room that one of the gentlest people I know, and her friend, happens to be one of the Ewing girls, okay, and her friend, and one other person, three girls are holding down a fourth girl and pretty much torturing her, okay, okay. The girl that's being tortured is cry, you know, not crying, she's screaming, you know, ah! and they're just holding her down and they're tickling her and they're torturing her. And I just looked over at Katie and I said, context is very important. You know, if this were going on in the middle of Walmart, we would look and we would call the police. But just because it happens to be at a youth lock-in, nobody cares. Nobody even looks. Let the girls go on and torture one another. Context is extremely important. So Psalm 65, verses 1 through 3, starts out this way. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. I just want to pause on verse 2 because we need to remember that all flesh will come to God eventually. Amen? You either come to Him now willingly or you will be compelled to go to Him At your death or his return, because the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To you shall all flesh come. Here's the verse that I want to focus on. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Now, I read this verse months ago, and the Holy Spirit stopped me in my tracks. I kept reading it over and over and over. Couldn't get it out of my heart. Couldn't get it out of my spirit. I said, God... This is one of the most beautiful scriptures, and it is so applicable to each and every one of us. When iniquities prevail, that means are strong, are mighty. And by the way, the word iniquity there doesn't just mean the sin. In the Hebrew, that word for iniquity means when the sin prevails against me, when the guilt I feel because of my sin prevails against me, it also implies When the consequences of my sin begin to overwhelm me, you atone for our transgressions. This is a really important verse. But before we get to it, I want us to realize that this is a psalm of David. How many of you like Davy? Okay. David is a wonderful guy. And I don't know why it was, but the pastor was preaching this morning. The phrase went through my mind. David is the most successful failure I have ever known in my life. Anybody feel like a successful failure? David is a successful failure. And I want us to look at him because it's important to understand. The Holy Spirit wrote this word, amen? But he used human beings and spoke through them. So what was David thinking? And why did God use David to pen these words? Now, when we think of David, how many of you, the first thing that comes to your mind, David and Goliath? I believe that he is most famous for his battle with Goliath. I mean, when you're little, you can pick up a book about David and Goliath. And we all know how that battle goes. We all know how amazing it is that a very young and inexperienced man, who heretofore had been a shepherd, now suddenly has the guts and the inner fortitude to take on a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall, experienced warrior. Right, And we think about David and Goliath and what a major victory that was and how famous David is throughout history for having won that battle. We also think of David as the greatest king or one of the greatest kings of Israel who united the kingdom, right? And you think of his might and his power and his wisdom. When I think of David, I'm always amazed because Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when we're given the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself chose to call himself, to give him the title, the son of David. Now let that sink in, because we take things like that for granted. Of all the titles Jesus could have used for himself, he calls himself the son of David. Now in just a little bit here, that might grab you a little bit more than it does right now, and you'd be like, wow, Jesus chooses to identify himself by the title, the son of David. So obviously, this is a great man. And not only that, but we have the Old and New Testament corroborate themselves, and we find out in the book of Acts, the Bible says, when God had removed him, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse. Let's say the phrase together. A man after my heart. Now, God said this. God looked at David, and we don't read that exact phrase of really anybody else in Scripture, but God looked down at David and said, This guy is a man who's after my very heart. Then it goes on to say, He will do all my will. Okay? Now, this comes, it's rooted in 1 Samuel 13, 14, just so you can see old and new work together. The Bible there says the same thing. Now your kingdom shall not continue, God says to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Okay, so David. Great victory with David and Goliath. Jesus chooses his name as a title for himself, right? And we are positively, absolutely sure that David is a man who was after God's own heart. Okay, so he's a great guy. Now, I want to go back to David and Goliath. You know, we read that story, we read it to our kids, we read it to our grandkids, and we just kind of like don't go backwards and ever talk to them or think about what made this guy able to do that. I mean, really. You know, you think he just woke up on that particular day and said, all of a sudden in his heart said, hey, I think I can take on a giant, the enemy giant. That's not what happened. Right? There was a lot of stuff that led up to the victory with David and Goliath. And this is part of what we need to recognize in the sin struggle. I want you to think about this. 1 Samuel 17, 33 to 37. Now, before we go there, let this thought get in your heart. It's what you do in the smallest details of everyday living that matter okay it's not the david and goliath moments it's the little moments what made a young man with no experience suddenly rise up when when the rest of the army would have nothing to do with it what gave him the inner fortitude to rise up and say i'll take on this giant and that is the question that god poses to you guys and to me tonight What is going to give us the inner fortitude and the inner strength to take on that giant that we face in our lives? And the answer is, it isn't just something that suddenly happens. It's something you develop in your life, which is what David did. Now, watch this in 1 Samuel 17. Saul said to David, okay, so Saul was trying to discourage David. David had already risen up and said, I think I'll try to take on the giant. And King Saul was like, this is a crazy idea. He said, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Okay? Everybody understand that? So this seems like an impossible task. Here's what David said. I don't know if you ever realized this. This is what David's response was. Okay? He didn't just come out and say, well, God told me to fight Goliath, so I'm going to do it. No. He referred back to a million days he had spent all alone in a field. Right? here's what he said. He said to Saul, your servant, David, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, okay, so hold on here. So David is referring to a chore that he had as a child of his father, right? That's what he's referring back to. He's like, okay, so I used to keep sheep for my father, and when a lion or a bear would come and take a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Now, I just want to pause there because we take so much of the Bible for granted. In my Sunday school class, we're learning not to do that. So you put yourself in this place, okay? So let's just think about this for a minute. So Joe Cox is a... um, shepherd, and he says, Ben, I'm putting you in charge of my flock now. Go out into the field, okay? So Ben's out in the field on a Tuesday afternoon. There's nobody around but a bunch of sheep going, bah, bah, okay? And, you know, maybe his dad's giving him an allowance for this, maybe not, but it's not some high-paying job, you know what I mean? The only thing Ben knows is, my dad put me out here, my dad told me to do this job. So he's out there with a bunch of sheep. There's nobody else around. You know, when it was David and Goliath, you know that happened in a valley. The valley of Elah, and that the whole army of Israel was on one mountain, the whole Philistine army was on another mountain. And I mean, it was in, you know, everybody was watching, and it was like a big deal. Well, okay, back in the field when he was watching his dad's flock, there was nobody around except the sheep. Bah, bah. Okay, just him and the sheep. It's a Tuesday afternoon. Just think of it this way an ordinary day. He's out there all by himself. Okay, and along comes a lion. And the lion comes after one of the sheep. Now, I know that some of you are very much in love with your animals, okay? Your pets, your household pets. But these aren't like the domesticated animals. They're just the sheep out there in the field, and there's probably hundreds of them. And a lion comes up to one of the sheep, and Ben's got to decide, am I going to risk my life to save this dumb animal? I mean, seriously, I want you to think about it. Would a person just because that's the job that their father assigned them to do, be willing to go up to a lion and wrestle a sheep out of its mouth because he would be risking his life to do so. Do you all agree? And the Bible says, David said, I would go after him and strike him and deliver it out of the lion or the bear's mouth. And if that lion or bear arose against me, I would grab him by his beard and I would strike him and kill him. What? This young man took so seriously, think about this, took so seriously. Now, here's the analogy. You ready for this? God, I I couldn't believe the connections that my brain started to make here. This young man took so seriously the assignment from his father. Okay? Get it, father, because think capital F. He took so seriously the assignment from his father that he would risk his life to go up against a lion or a bear for a stupid sheep. Isn't that something? That's the reason David said, I can go take on a Philistine. Because on a regular Tuesday afternoon in a field when a lion came, this David had so much passion for what his dad told him he should do and do well that he risked his life for sheep. And I think to myself, wow, that's really amazing. He said, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Sometimes people wonder, how do you win spiritual victories over sin, like big victories? How do you do big stuff for God? You know how you do it? You do the everyday little stuff for God. You take most seriously what God is telling you to do. But this is more than just that, okay? I realized what God is trying to communicate through this whole event with the lions and the bears and David and Goliath. I realized that David not only pursued the heart of God. Okay, now listen. The Bible says David was a man after what? A man who went after God's heart. So we know for a fact that David pursued the heart of God. But because of this story, we know that David not only pursued God's heart, God was supernaturally using him to reflect God's heart. Now I don't know if any of you are starting to think if your wheels are turning at all here yet or not. But I go to you, but go with me to John chapter 10. Okay? John chapter 10. We're going to read something about Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said and see if you begin to make this connection. David not only pursued God's heart, but he was reflecting God's heart. And you need to grab on to this because right here is where God is going to show us how seriously he is with you and going to help you in your struggle against sin. You ready for this? How many of you know this famous verse when Jesus said, the thief, right? The devil comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, right? Okay, so the devil is like the lion or the bear coming after the sheep. They want to destroy the sheep. Jesus said the enemy, the devil, comes to steal your peace. If he could, he would come to kill your whole life, to stop you in your tracks from anything you're going to do for the kingdom of God, and to tell you that your struggle with sin, the consequences and guilt of your sin, is too great. You with me? Then Jesus said, I am the good what? See, I I mean, I've always loved Psalm 23 because it's nice at funerals. How, how many of you have ever liked, oh, Psalm 23, that's nice. Let's put that on a bookmark. That's a pretty psalm. And all of a sudden, God like knocked me down and said, Shelly, don't you get it? Like, this shepherd thing is majorly big. I don't know. I'm a math person. I'm not into shepherding. So it never really struck me before. But all of a sudden, when I thought about David out on the field on a Tuesday afternoon with his sheep, laying down his wife, going up against lions for sheep, I realized that God was showing us Jesus in David. And that's why Jesus said, I'm the son of David. Watch this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. I know Rich won't mind if I say this. He's my buddy, okay? Rich is the stupid sheep. And so am I. We are the sheep out in the field that are dumb and that the enemy doesn't care for. And we even ourselves rip on ourselves and think we're not valuable enough. David thought one animal was valuable enough to take down a lion or bear for it or risk his life doing it. What was he showing us about Jesus? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would go to death for you, dumb sheep. All right? That's how valuable you are. He was reflecting the heart of Jesus. He Now, I love this. Here's what he said then. He said, the hired hand is not a shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's hired, and he doesn't really care about the sheep. All right, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those guys, they weren't going to lay down their life for people. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. You with me? They were just doing it for the prophet, for what, for making themselves feel good. Jesus came because he actually what? He actually loves you. He said, I'm not going to run away when the lion and the bear and the wolf come. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Okay? Lions and tigers. Jesus isn't running when they come. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I never saw that before in the Bible. Did anybody ever see that between David in the field for his father as a young man and Jesus? It's a beautiful, beautiful analogy. So I want to start by letting you know that in our struggle against sin, for how dumb and wayward we are, and how often I put myself in the mouth of a lion, any dumb sheep in here ever wandered off on your own and walked right up to the lion? Or is it only that the lion chases us? No, the lion does chase me, but I many times just walk up to him myself. Hey, let me fool around with the lion right now, okay? I walk up to him. Jesus says, I lay down my life for you. I take this so seriously. Now, there's one other place I want to point out where Jesus comes into this analogy again and Matthew 18, okay? It's a scripture that I had a hard time understanding until just the past few weeks. Jesus said, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? I can kind of get that, right? Okay? But the part that I could never really understand, if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And that always bothered me because I thought, does he love the one that wondered more? Right? Has that ever bothered anybody? I said, why did he rejoice some more over that one? Does he love that one more? What does that mean? Until, okay, Facebook is not inherently evil. It can be used for bad purposes, but it can be used for good. Until I watched the Facebook feed over the past year of one of my former students that I taught way back, like 20 years ago. Her name is Amy. And she now, I, I can't believe I'm this old, but she now has five young boys, okay? Maybe middle school down, but they're very young, five young boys. I've been following her story on Facebook, and what happened is Amy is also a professional photographer. So she would take many pictures of her boys and post them on Facebook, and they were really good photographs. And I would look at all the boys, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, and she would, she's a Christian, and she would talk about them. Until about eight months ago, when Amy's uh, youngest son, who was a brand newborn, his name's Maverick, was born with a heart defect and had to immediately, as a newborn baby, have open heart surgery for which he was expected not to make it. And so after that happened, I saw Amy, the photographer, who used to post pictures of all her boys. Suddenly, they weren't on Facebook anymore. And every picture was a picture of Maverick in the hospital with the tubes, you know, please pray for Maverick, you know, please pray that God will heal him. And people would, you know, encourage her and send their prayers. And and after a few months, I thought to myself, just once, the thought crossed my mind, Does she still have the other four boys? Okay? Where are the other four boys? And I realized what she was doing eventually, she started putting pictures of them back on. And I thought, what Amy was doing, after he made it through the surgery, she was so thankful that the one who was going to die was now going to live, that her feed was constantly little Maverick. And do any of you fault her for doing that? And and backing off on posting the other four healthy boys? And does anybody in here think that Amy loves Maverick more than she loves the other boys? And the answer is no. But she almost lost him. And he was found and he was recovered and he was alive. And suddenly that scripture became real to me. It doesn't mean that Jesus loves the one that wandered anymore, but that one could have been lost. And so I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. It's not God's will that anyone should perish. But here's what really hit me. How dare we think, oh, Jesus would show special deference to the one who went off into sin, and rejoice over them more when they come back. Anybody ever get a little bit of jealousy when you see other people brought back, and you're like, how could, why would he rejoice? I, I've always stayed true to Jesus. Well, first of all, there's many of us sitting in the sanctuary who don't want to admit, no, we haven't. But I'm here to tell you that you can try to deny that all you want. Look at this beautiful connection. I want to show you biblically that every single one of us is maverick on the Facebook feed. Every single one of us is the sheep that went astray. So before you get jealous that Jesus rejoices over the one that went astray more than the faithful ones, get this in your head. You are the one that went astray. Watch this. Anybody ever heard this verse before? Read it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Oh, the connection, how God hit me with this. That's what that verse in Matthew is all about. It's not that Jesus loves or rejoices more over the sinner than the non-sinner, the wayward one. It's the fact that that's all of us. Amen? Who's relieved to know everybody's in the same boat? Okay, it doesn't matter if you wondered ten years ago, if you're wondering tonight, whenever you've wandered away, Jesus rejoices over you, you are on his Facebook feed, He's putting your picture there when you come back to him because you're the one. you're the dumb sheep that went astray. Now, I want to go back to David, Second chronicles, just to solidify, just so everybody understands. David is considered a great man of God. Second Chronicles 8.14 says that David is the man of God. 2 Kings 25 says the Lord is the God of David. I found those two scriptures because I thought it was kind of cool. Just in case, you know, you think it goes one direction, it's going both. You see how they're tied in? David is the man of God, and God is the God of David. It's a done deal. It's sealed. David is a man of God. Everybody with me? There's a reason... We're setting this up. So let's remember, David had passion on a Tuesday afternoon in the field. He would—he—he he loved God and he loved his father so much that he would lay down his life for the dumb sheep he was in charge of. You with me? Who else came and laid down his life for the dumb sheep because of what his father told him to do? Jesus, okay. So David fought Goliath, and he won. He was the greatest king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He's a man of God. God is the God of David. David, Jesus said, I'm the son of David. So this man is really, really great, which doesn't sit right with me when I read the next scripture, right? You know where I'm going with this? Now, please allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart, okay? Please allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart. There is no sin that you can commit that Jesus has not laid down his life to rescue you dumb sheep. You with me? I just went over a ton of scriptures that verify biblically we have so much evidence that David... I can't wait to meet David in heaven. How many of you know David's in heaven right now with the Lord? How many of you know David was a man of God? Wow. So let's read this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Yeah, David was a man after what God's own heart he was also after some uh, women right let's just say it like it is right David the man of God David who would risk his life for a sheep would go and commit adultery get a woman pregnant who belonged to another man And he's still a man after God's own heart? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No, it's not. Mm -mm. There is not a man or woman in this sanctuary tonight or on the face of this green earth. You ready for me? There is not a man or woman in this sanctuary or on the face of this green earth. Who is not a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. And you can still be, ready? A woman after God's own heart. Now you gotta watch the process here. We're not condoning sin, but I wanna get real with you. We need to preach the whole counsel of God, amen? He's a man after God's own heart. He committed adultery, but it gets worse. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah is the man whose wife David talked. You with me? So he sends a letter by the hand of this soldier who is the man who, you know, is married to Bathsheba. And in the letter, David wrote... Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Okay. Is Christianity, is biblical Christianity the most real thing you can ever get? David is a man after God's own heart. And after committing the sin of adultery, Wants to try to cover his tracks. Right? How many of you have ever been there? You sin, you're in the hole now. You figure, I gotta cover up this hole. Okay? When you try to cover up the hole, the hole just gets deeper. You can't cover up the hole yourself. So in an attempt to deal with the guilt, and how many of you, how many of you have ever committed a sin that you replay in your mind a few days later? Few months later, years, decades. Listen, I'm sure David replayed these sins till the day he died. He was still a man after God's own heart. You with me? Watch this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. So we have an adulterer and a murderer. Right? A man after God's own heart. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. I didn't put this text up on the screen. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote. After he was confronted with his sin of adultery and murder and we're not going to read the whole thing But there's a few things that I want you to see and if you are somebody sitting in here tonight who struggles with The guilt or consequences of your own sin, and I mean, you know to the nth degree whether it's sexual sin whether it's um, Jealousy that kind of sin whether it's addiction to substance that type of sin take it as far as murder Okay? There are potentially, I mean, we've all murdered at our own heart, and some of us in here potentially have murdered. So did David. You with me? Again, I'm not condoning sin, but I'm telling you, there is no place that God cannot bring you back from. Amen? That's the gospel. The gospel is not about perfect people, religious church-attending people that somehow earn their way to God. The gospel is You are at your absolute worst, and God brings you out. Amen? So here's what David said after he had committed that sin. There's just a few principles I want to outline here, although it would do good to read and study this psalm. First of all, verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. And we should not take the word mercy for granted. Mercy means he looks down on us and he pities us for our pathetic nature. That's what it means. If somebody's going to have mercy on you, they look down on you and they pity you. Now, if I have pity on Deborah, that means I feel sorry for her because she's in some kind of mess. All right? So God knows you're in the mess. So David acknowledges, hey, I'm in a a mess here. Please have mercy on me. Like, don't give me what I deserve, but recognize I'm a pitiful mess. David was not ashamed to say, I'm the man. I'm a mess. I need mercy. He says, wash me, blot out, cleanse me. Verse three, look at this. What is the difference between a person who's truly repentant and a person who isn't? Oh. When you've truly repented, you know your sin. You know what I mean? Like you know it. Do you see what David said there? He said, I know. My transgressions. Okay? When a person can sit down and call it out and you can, have you ever talked to someone or counseled with someone or had them say, and you can see it in their eyes, man, they finally got how bad they are. Right? They finally got how bad they are. This has happened to me with a number of different people and in, and in helping them along the way, I finally realized when they got to the place where they realized, that's how bad I am, he looked what he said. He said, "I know my transgressions. my sin is what what is my sin? It is ever before me. I can't outrun it. I can't get away from it. everywhere I turn. I try to go to sleep at night. there it is. I try to distract myself. There it is. I know my sin. it's ever before me. Listen, that's not a bad place to be." And as long as you live in this in this life, and I'm sure David, it was the same thing. He would always remember that sin, all right? God doesn't erase your memory. And it's a darn good thing because you need to remember how serious that sin is and from what God is having to save you. He said, I am aware of my sin against you and you only have I sin. Now I want you to jump down to verse 10. Okay, verses 10 through 12. We hear this phrase so often, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. But I want you to look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Okay? If you are someone who struggles with the guilt of your sin or the sins of those around you, I want you to underline, to note, to color in verses 11 and 12 and realize verses 11 and 12 are two of the most dangerous verses to the devil in the entire Bible. Okay, here's why. Many Christians, who are on their way to heaven. you with me? Live a non-victorious life for Jesus because they are convinced their guilt before God renders them useless. Okay? Listen. David not only believed he could be forgiven, he believed that God would still allow him to have his holy spirit you with me not only did he believe he could be forgiven and go to heaven david believed according to verse 12 that he could have what what does it say that he could have the joy of his salvation back are you with me okay The devil wants to steal from you the joy of your salvation, wants to make you believe you're useless, and then, the second part of verse 12, he says, uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, when I am restored, make me willing to do your will. I'm not garbage after this, okay? I can still do what you will for me to do. Do you guys see the hope in that? Okay, it's more than just, I don't have to go to hell, now I'm on the way to heaven. It's God is going to totally restore you. Look what David said. And he's doing that tonight. Do you realize that God answered verse, verse 13? Do you realize that God answered verse 13 even tonight in the year 2014 for David? Do you realize that? He said, then I will be able to teach transgressors your ways. And sinners can return to you. And there are people tonight who will draw closer to God and return to God because of what David is teaching us right now, okay? This is a beautiful, beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. Now, with all of that in mind, with all of that context in mind, with David the writer of Psalm 65.3 in mind, I want us to go back to the key verse, okay? And we're going to end this by actually moving backwards in the Bible to the book of Genesis. This is crazy. As if the shepherd connection and the Jesus and David connection was not enough, and God showing his heart for wanting to bring us back wasn't enough, I could not believe that Psalm 65 would take me to Noah's Ark. Okay? David, Noah, Jesus, I mean, they're all... They're all in this thing. It's so, how many of you love that the Bible is so deep, so rich, and so connected? And God can show you that. I mean, this is cool stuff. I had never known, never thought of David out in the field reflecting Jesus and what he was saying about me. And, and now watch this. This is crazy. So David is the one, the murderer, the adulterer, the one who is called a man of God is the one who wrote these words. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Now, here's why I taught you all that. When you read this verse, you're talking to somebody who knows. Okay? How many of you believe that David has some sleepless nights thinking about how Uriah had died on the battlefield? Think he did? Anybody think he did? How many of you know that the baby between Bathsheba and David, what happened to the baby? The baby died consequences okay how many of you know the trouble that david had with his own son absalom who ended up being killed by one of david's own soldiers okay you with me consequences you think this guy had some sleepless nights he fasted and prayed please don't kill this baby i know this is my fault please don't let this baby die guess what the baby still died he still had trouble in his own family he inherited a lot of consequences for his sin So when he says, and and I just broke into tears in my house when I read this, just broke into tears. When this man says, iniquities are prevailing against me, whoa, he knows what he's talking about. This man has had some sleepless nights. This man has the blood of people on his hands. And that That phrase, when iniquities prevail against me, I want to remind you, in the Hebrew, the word iniquity there not only means the actual sin, it means the guilt that follows the sin. How many of you love guilt? Oh, yeah. That's good stuff, right? Okay? Not just the iniquity, the guilt from the iniquity, and it also means the consequence or the punishment for the iniquity. Remember Cain, after God gave him his penalty? What did he say to God? God, help me because I can't bear this. Penalty, all right? So David said, when my iniquities prevail against me. Now, the next word I want you to see is prevail. And I want, to, I want to show you the beautiful word picture that God uses to show us just the feel of this. Prevail means to be mighty, to be strong, to overtake, to overwhelm. Anybody in this place ever felt like your sin, the consequences or the guilt of your sin, was just going to overwhelm your soul? It was just going to rip your life apart. How were you ever going to find peace? Okay, that's what this means. The word prevail in Psalm 65.3 is the exact same word that's used in Genesis chapter 7 verse 20. Watch this. When God sent the waters of the flood, they prevailed above the mountains by 22 feet. So you want to get a feel for what what David meant when he said, my sin is overwhelming me? The word literally means the waters of the flood came over the earth and prevailed, were mightier than, were stronger than, covered even the highest mountains by 22 feet. Now, as I was preaching this to myself at home, and sometimes the neighbors hear, but in the winter it's less likely, I stopped in my tracks. I started, you know, I sometimes get loud when I'm preaching at home. And I was preaching to myself, and that's how these things come to me. I'm talking, I'm talking, the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. The waters prevailed over the mountains by 22 feet. Okay, I've never known anybody that was 22 feet tall. So here's what I'm thinking God's trying to say here. After you have sinned and wandered away from God, the guilt and the consequence and the punishment of your sin starts to chase you down. Are you with me? and the next thing that you do if you don't go the right direction is you start to well i'm going to run from this i'm going to distract myself i'm going to get busy i'm going to run from this and you start running but then the sin, the guilt, it just, it's coming behind you. I better run faster. I better run faster. Wait, it's coming up. It's up to my ankles now. Wait, it's everywhere. It's all over the ground. I can't run from it. I've I got to get some height. I think I'll start up that tree. I'll start climbing that tree. I'll start running up that mountain. I can get away from this guilt. I can get away from this sin. I can get away from this punishment. Up the mountain you go. But guess what God says? Nope. Because it's just going to keep coming up. You can't run away from your guilt and your sin. It's going to prevail. And it prevailed above the mountains by 22 feet. There wasn't a human being alive who could go to the tallest mountain or the highest tree and not be covered by the water. You with me? That's God's judgment. David said, my iniquities, I couldn't get away from them. They prevailed against me. Like the waters prevailed on the earth after the, when the flood was happening. So here's what David said. He's like, I'm helpless. Here's the deal. You ready? We are helpless. Can we get it through our thick heads? You can't give enough in the offering plate. You can't do enough good works. You can't be nice enough to your mother-in-law to earn the way out of this guilt. It's chasing you down. It's covering you up. You are going under. Amen? All right, that's it. That's the message. No, it doesn't end there. Listen, this is the hope. So David recognized that. And that's why, and and the, the title of this message is a little bit of a trick title. I titled the message, What to Do When You're Overwhelmed by the Sin Struggle. And guess what the answer is? You don't do anything. When iniquities prevail against me, David said what? You, you, God, you atone for our transgressions. Amen? You can't do it. God has to do it. And what does God do? The Bible says God atones. How many of you love the word atone? Anybody love the word atone? Anybody from Sunday school remember why you should love the word atone? It's a simple word to understand. What does the word atone mean? That you become? This is so simple, okay? You can go around and pretend you know like deep theology. Sit down with somebody and have a coffee. Let me tell you about atonement, okay? The word atone is a very deep theological word. You put a space between the T and the O, and it means at one. That's what it means. That word means to be at one. And when we use the fancy word atonement, we mean at one minute. Let me keep it here, at one. I gotta tell you one thing. There is only one person who can survive the floodwaters of judgment. His name, John, is Jesus Christ, the maker of the floodwater. You with me? So I want you to picture this is what I pictured. You're All these people running up the mountain trying to get away from the flood. Can't get away from it. My iniquities are prevailing against me. They're covering me up, God. What am I going to do? There's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do, you ready for this? The only thing I can do is link my arm with Jesus. Okay? I'm going to come up to Jesus. I'm going to go like this. And I'm going to stand there with my arm in Jesus' arm. And Jesus is going to say, here we go got this okay that's a that's at one minute we're looking for so many crazy religious answers people are doing all kind of crazy things to try to earn this and that david said when they prevail against me the only hope you got is to link arms with jesus who's the only one who can stand against the flood that's what atonement means david said when iniquities prevail against me you atone for our transgressions now here's a weird thing this is really wild stuff the word prevail, where do you get the picture from? In the book of Genesis, you get the picture from the waters, right? Do you know that the word atone happens also to be found, where do you think? In the book of Genesis, at the flood. Oh, this is this beautiful? I, I, I can't, can't make this stuff up. This is so crazy. Watch this. To prepare for the flood, the judgment of God, God said to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Right? How many of you remember that? Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. You guys are like, wow, that's inspiring. It is. Guess what? The word for cover there, you know what it is? It's the same word in Psalm sixty five three for atone. Oh wait, watch this. If you make a gigantic vessel as big as the Titanic out of wood and you don't seal it, your ship is gonna sink. Do you ever think about that? It's just wood. It's going to have some knots, some holes, okay? God said, don't just make the ark, Noah. After you make it, you've got to take pitch. Now, there's debates on, uh, creation debates on whether this was coal-based pitch or this was um, petroleum-based pitch. It doesn't matter which it was. It was a thick, resonance, waterproofing substance. And it is the word atone. This is crazy. The same word for atone at one minute with God is the word that is used when the Bible says, make the ark, Noah, but make sure you cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, why do you cover it? Why does he put pitch on it? To make the thing what? What's your guess? Make it waterproof. Right? You don't want to be in that with a ship that has like knots and and bumps in the wood. Because it's coming in. And I mean, they were out on the water for many, many months. Do you understand? And like if it wasn't sealed with waterproofing, it was eventually going to go down. And see, you can try to deal with your sin on your own for a while, but the leaks are going to start coming in. Anybody ever been there? Oh, you think you're a good person. You're making up for it. Everything's okay. Leaks start coming in. You don't want to be out there on that boat if that thing has not been sealed with Pitch. If it has not been covered with pitch, you are going down. Romans 5.11 said, Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the what? Atonement. Listen, you could look at that word atonement and think of this. Here's the deal. Jesus Christ ...has sealed your ship. Can anybody say amen? Jesus Christ has sealed your ark. There is not one bit of the devil's damnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus... The devil's not even getting through by a tiny little hole in the bottom of the ark. Amen? Because Jesus is your covering. He's your pitch. He's your waterproofer. Okay? Now here's what I want to emphasize, though, because this is where the devil gets us. That means that I will not go to hell for my sins, that I do not stand condemned before God for my sins, that I am not rendered useless because of my sins. Amen? That does not mean that I don't have to ride the waves. You with me? This is, this is the part that blessed me the most, okay? Because God brought us to Noah's Ark and the Atonement, and I'm like, okay, this is so cool. This does not mean that I don't have to ride the waves of the consequence of my sin. You with me? Sin has a price tag. Now Jesus paid for your spiritual well-being. But as long as we are in this life, the ark is still going to have to ride out the waves. Okay? Don't let that stop you and discourage you. You're still dry inside. Are you with me? Isn't this a beautiful picture? Is anybody seeing this? Okay, it doesn't mean that ark is waterproof and there's no water getting in and I'm not going to drown and I'm not going to sink and I'm not going to be destroyed, but I might get a little bit seasick. Does that mean God doesn't love me? No. The fact that I'm in there getting seasick means that he does love me because I'm alive the other people outside the seasick ship are dead the waters prevailed against them not me I want you to know that even if you have to suffer guilt in this life deal with memories suffer consequences you are still safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. Amen? You are on your way out. Your, your ark has been sealed. Now watch this to end on this verse. Not only is the word cover mean atone, God is your covering, Jesus is your covering. God also said, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I was like, gopher wood? Who's ever uh, burned gopher wood in their wood burner? Anybody ever build any furniture out of gopher wood? Yeah. Okay, it's a transliteration from the Hebrew, basically because Bible scholars don't know what wood it was. Some people guess cypress, but they're not really sure. Gopher wood is like, okay, Noah and his family must have known what it was. We're not quite sure, but obviously it was some type of wood. Do you know what I love about that? People say, oh, the Bible, you know, that's controversial. How, if we if don't know exactly what kind of wood it was, then it must not have been, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, I think God did this on purpose. I think he made the wood just a little bit mysterious. Because the wood of the ark is representative of the salvation of God. And the salvation of Jesus Christ is just a tad mysterious, isn't it? When I look at the cross of Calvary and think that the God of the universe died on two pieces of wood, I'm like... I don't really get that. I think God left it just a little bit mysterious on purpose. He said, you make that ark out of gopher wood, now here's the last thing I want to say. You cover it. And what is the word cover? The same word as? What is it? Say it with me. Atone. You atone. for. You make us at one. Jesus is our covering. He's waterproofed your ship. You're not going to die. You're going to make it through even though you're riding out the waves, but here. I'm telling you, the book of Genesis contains the seed for everything else in the Bible. Do you see that? Watch this. He said, make rooms in the ark. (sighs) Do you know what the word rooms there means in Hebrew? Make little nesting spaces in the ark. Like, make little cubby holes make one for the elephants, you know, make one for the chipmunks, make one for the people, make rooms in the ark, because after all, you're going to have to be in it for a while. And by the way, the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, not only did God make him Uh, cover the thing with pitch to waterproof the outside, but he said cover it outside and in with pitch. Matthew Henry said the reason he probably said to cover it inside with pitch is that pitch would have taken away odor. And that adds another point. It's a good point. uh, Seriously, I mean this is deep theological truth. I'm not joking around here. Check this out, ready? Just because your sins are forgiven and you're on the way to heaven, don't let the devil take you down. You're still going to have to ride the waves. And it's still going to be stinky while we're here. Okay? Cuz the ark in that judgment day was not the final answer. Was it? it? Wasn't the final answer. That was judgment and then people, you know, they got off and Noah and his sons and sin started all over again, right? But it was it was a picture Because Jesus said his coming will be like the days of Noah. Amen? But his coming, his salvation, won't just be, I'll help you ride out the judgment that's here. His salvation will be, I'm going to take you out of it forever. Right? So... God said, make rooms in the ark, make little rooms, make little nesting places so that you can survive in there until I set you free and you start all over again. Where else do we read about rooms being made? Isn't this the coolest thing? I, come on, like I am just blown away. I can't even believe all this stuff that I've had. Rooms being made. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if that weren't true, Jesus said, I would have told you. And I am going to prepare a place for you so that when I come again, this time I'm not going to leave you there in a safety zone to ride the waves and smell the stench. This time, what's he going to do this time? I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nation I love that in Genesis while we're still in this sin-cursed world the waters prevailed didn't they we had to be protected from them in the new heaven and the new earth, when God takes us out of this mess and lifts us forever, where we'll never face consequences again, the water not prevailing. The water is directed beautifully as a river through the tree of life that's for the healing of the nations. Now watch this. And no longer will there be anything accursed. Because of the covering of Jesus Christ, this temporary covering in the ark of safety that we have, there is coming a day when we will no longer have to ride the waves of the consequences of our sins. Are you with me? And we will no longer have to smell the stench of this life and this world and its pain. When your sin, the sins of those you love, The consequences and the guilt and the mess that comes from all that prevails against you. Quit running up the mountain. It's still coming, right? Build the ark, which for us is not a wood ship. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, right? The ark was covered with pitch to waterproof and protect us from every potential of sinking the cross of calvary was covered with the blood of jesus christ to seal your salvation there ain't no water of judgment getting in your ship you might feel the waves might get a little seasick might be a little stinky down here But there is no condemnation, amen, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a room in that ark. God has a place for you, amen? He has a place for you in the body of Christ.